You're listening to Lead to Soar, bringing women the best career advice and mentorship from around the world. Lead to Soar is a production of a career that soars. Learn more at leadtosoar.com. The Lead to Soar podcast is recorded on the ancestral home of the Ho-Chunk Nation in Madison, Wisconsin, USA, and on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne, Australia. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of these lands and their elders past and present and welcome any First Nations people listening today, wherever you are. Welcome back to Lead to Soar, listeners. It's your host. I was so host with the most, but that's a bit uh, self-aggrandizing. So uh, it's Michelle. And today I'm delighted to have with me Emma Conway. Now, Emma is, well, Emma has a whole bunch of different credits to her name. But, uh, you know, what, what I'm uh, most uh, enthused about talking to Emma about is, well, a couple of different things. Her career in male-dominated environments and some of us might call them hyper-masculine environments. So first of all, the Navy and then emergency services. But before we get into to all of that, uh, welcome, Emma, to the podcast and thank you for lending your time to, to, to me, uh, to us, the Lead to Soar, and of course, to the women and men uh, who, who listen to the podcast. Welcome aboard. Thanks very much, Michelle. It's lovely to be here. So, Emma, we, you know, we've, we've got your official bio, but you know, when, when you and I were just talking off air about perhaps you know we could imagine we're sitting on a couch having a you know having a beer or a glass of wine and having a bit of a chat if someone wandered up to us and said hey Michelle who have you got with you how would you introduce yourself to people um so I suppose the main thing about me is um you know I'm still on a journey so I've had two very significant careers as you've said navy and fire brigade but I am in no way shape or form fully developed. So I'm just a person on a journey, um, doing the best I can and making the most of every opportunity. Okay. And uh, so tell us about, let, let's let's hear about your current role first. So what are you responsible for right now? And you are a commander, so I, I feel like I haven't addressed you correctly, but uh, tell us about your current title and your current role, please. So my current title is commander, but it's a title only. So um, basically my role is pretty diverse. Um, I work for Country Fire Authority Victoria. I'm responsible for developing capability and capacity of volunteer fire brigades. <clears throat> and those two jobs are just so broad. So I do everything from you know, HR management, support of volunteer leaders, development of training. Um, I spend a lot of time driving all over the countryside, building relationships with CFA volunteers, our emergency services stakeholders. Um, I spend a lot of time sitting around tables, drinking coffee, talking about how to do fire brigade better. Um, and I suppose that's the thing that I really love is that relationship with people who are passionate about what they do. And, you know, you can't beat the passion of volunteers. Um, it's also a really challenging space because when we're dealing with volunteers, you have a huge range of motivations, you know, reasons for people to be there and you have to try and understand them all and then work out a way to harness them to a common or central purpose. So, yeah, basically building relationships, driving around the countryside, um, being part of my teams is such a big thing. So I work in West Gippsland, um, CFA District 9 is based in Warrigal and we have 42 volunteer fire brigades in that area. 
I look after predominantly the South Gippsland group of 16 fire brigades and they're an incredibly diverse group. So everything from the team at Inverloch, which is quite a um, tourist space, lots of people in the holidays, um, you know, quite a, a coastal retirement space, all the way down to Headley um, further east, which is a very rural, remote um, dairy farming area where they've got a little tin shed, one truck and three firefighters. Um, so the scale of the workload is hugely diverse and um, the the range of people that we work with is also hugely diverse. So that's pretty much what a commander does in a nutshell. Every so often I get to play with fire. Um, I don't go on trucks anymore and I don't hold hoses. I fight fires with people. So my job as an incident manager is to make sure that I've got the right people in the field with the right skills and the right tools to deal with whatever comes up. So I do a little bit of um, local incident management and then when we have significant incidents, I get involved in level three incident management. So what's occurred to me as as you were talking there, um, Emma, was uh, I'm just mentally mapping what you've said against our three-part leadership definition. So our leadership definition is using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. And I think um, so, so for our our listeners who are not in Australia, the Country Fire Authority is, as you've said, uh, well, we have vast areas um, in Australia that are, um, well, they're populated, but very small populations, but vast areas. So bushfires are, are, are really, you know, they're a big deal for us here, um, as it is in California and, and, and other places. But when I think about what you have to do in terms of your role as a commander of that district that you're in, the thing that occurs to me is engaging the greatness in others. And when I talk to people, women in who participate in my leadership programs uh, and others. What we talk about in engaging the greatness in others is things what not to do. And one of the things we say what not to do is command and control style of leadership. And I always give this caveat, except when it comes to first responders. And I say in the military and first responders, command and control is, you know, that's an appropriate place for um, you know, th- th- sorry, that's the, the appropriate place for a command and control style leadership. Because let's face it, if a bushfire breaks out, we're not going to have a focus group and do an engagement survey or anything like that. You're going to obey the expert who says, go here, do this, whatever it is. But as you were talking, I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. You have a, you said yourself, a whole bunch of volunteers who have a whole bunch of different motivations for being part of the Country Fire Authority, which means that there must be an element of inner crisis. Sure, they, they, there's a hierarchy, I suppose, and you can talk about the hierarchy and who gets to do what and, you know, order people around. But outside of that, how do you engage the greatness in others when it's a volunteer workforce? Because I think it's really relevant for, you know, um, leaders who are saying, well, maybe I don't have direct authority over people, but I can influence. So can you talk us through how you do that? Yeah, absolutely. That influence piece is the critical one. So there's two sides to that. Firstly is the building relationships before the fire starts. So there's a lot of analogies. Um, One I hear a lot is, you know, you don't want to be handing your business card out at the middle of a fire. You need those relationships built before the incident happens so that when you get into those environments, you already know the people around you. You might have done some training with them. You might have been on course with them. 
you might have done previous incidents with them. So you, at least you recognise them. You know the face. You might know their name. Um, you've got a sense of them. So that's really important when you step into that emergency space is have built the relationships before you get there. The other side of it is that influence piece, and I think that's absolutely critical. So one of the things that I find is with volunteers especially, you need to give them the why. Why are we here why are we giving up our time? Why are we stepping away from our families and our work and our, our recreation to be here? What does it mean to us to, to do this work? And if you can start tapping into the why of each individual, then you can find the trigger that lets you bring them into the why of the organisation. So our mission is to protect life and property. It's very high level. It's very impersonal. Um, it's very relevant. But what I do is really try and help them understand how their work, their contribution, whatever that is, contributes to the safety and success of their communities. Because the thing with volunteer fire brigades is that they are community. You know, they're just people, neighbours, business owners, you know, just random people who've decided that stepping up for their community is important to them. So that's one of the really big strengths of CFA is that we are community. And if you've got a strong community, you're going to have a strong brigade. And if you've got a strong brigade, it can contribute to a strong community. So helping the members understand how they can contribute to that strength, how they can um benefit themselves in their community, really tie them into that emotional piece is a really great way to get that buy-in, um, to get that influence, to then be able to ask them, all right, well, now I need you to do this and now I need you to do that. So really tying them into the why is absolutely critical and then you can go into the what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. But if they understand the why first, they're far more likely to commit to everything else. Simon Sinek says start with why. And, you know, that, that is, so I think that's a, a, a really, you know, you've, you've captured that perfectly, help people understand the why. And I think for our listeners um, who might be involved in, well, whether it's a volunteer organisation, whether it's, you know, things like the employee resource group uh, in their organisation and who they don't have direct authority over or project teams where they're in, you know, cross-functional project teams uh, where we've got to negotiate and influence and what have you, really coming back to that why um, is absolutely important. But the other thing that you said there, which I want to call out is, is then getting the right people in the right place doing the right thing at the right time, which means you're seeking out their greatness. So you've, um, as the leader of, of the organisation, you're really focused on saying where, who's got the talent, who's got the skills and, and where do we make sure, you know, how do we make sure people are assembled in, in the right way? Um, so I think that's, you know, two, two really good um, calls to action for, for our listeners. Start with why and then work out where people are in their zone of genius and make sure that they're, you know, um, being able to, to play to their strengths. I want to go back in time a little bit, though, Emma, because uh, I want to honour your very, very interesting career. And listeners, I, I first heard Emma's story uh, some months ago when I was fortunate enough to be working with a bunch of, uh, of volunteers in um, in surf lifesaving or, or lifesaving uh, here, in, here in Australia. And Emma was talking through her history, which is when I went, hello, I, I need to 
have this woman share her story. So take us right back, Emma. I, 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 you know, you've, you're at school, you've decided to, over to you. Well, actually, I left school halfway through year seven. Um, my parents pulled my brother and sister out of primary school. They decided to homeschool them. And uh, I decided high school wasn't for me and homeschool was the way to go. So I actually spent two and a half years at home being taught by my mum, which was a fascinating experience. And uh, got to the point where she and I were doing the whole teenage mum-daughter thing and decided that I needed to move on from that. So I actually applied to TAFE to do an electronic certificate and um, purely circumstantial, the one I applied for uh, didn't have the numbers, so they put me into a cert for of electronics. And I was the youngest female um, in Victoria to do a cert for in electronics. Um, there was a big push to get girls into the technical trades at that point, so I was pretty fortunate in getting a scholarship and all that sort of stuff. But when I got to the end of that, I didn't really have a plan. So, you know, I was a 15-year-old, you know, 16-year-old, female in Wangaratta, northeast Victoria, <laughs> what on earth was I going to do next? And I don't actually know how I ended up in the recruiting office, but I ended up in the Australian Defence Force recruiting office deciding to join the Navy. Um, and, yeah, it was a really bizarre thing. So I have memories of that period. I, I have blanks of that period. But... Um, yeah, so there wasn't any particular plan. It just seemed like the right thing to do at the time. And there I was in the Navy as an electronics technician um, joining Cerberus at 16 years of age. So, um, yeah, it was a really bizarre experience. And one of the things that um, has really, uh, I suppose, been common across all my career choices is that there wasn't really a plan. It just sort of happened that way. You're listening to Lead to Soar, a production of A Career That Soars. A Career That Soars, or ACTS, is an organization, a networking platform, and a place for career women to learn and connect. Our founder, Susan Colantuno, envisioned a group that would embrace women from all backgrounds and support one another towards achieving their highest career ambitions. Learn more about what you can get from ACTS by visiting leadtosoar.com and clicking the ACTS link. did you develop actually let me come back to that Emma because I then I want to talk about let's get through your history and then I want to talk about that say yes because I think it's a really interesting mindset to cultivate uh, in terms of you know mindset and appetite for risk so you've done your electronics um, cert for and then yeah so then I joined the navy um, as a 16 year old female streamed uh, electronics technician majoring in weapons maintenance. So I specialised in hydraulics and PLCs and um, 
all the the weapon systems that the Navy runs. And then I got my first posting to a ship based in Western Australia. So I'm still 17 and I decided if I was going to leave home, I was going to do it properly. So I picked up a ship in Western Australia and, uh, yeah, that was the first big step in my naval career. How many women were on the ship with you? Or how many people were on the ship and how many of them were women? That's probably a better better um, scene setting. Yeah, so, so that particular ship's got a crew of about 140 and I suppose in that at that particular time maybe 40 of them were women. Okay, okay. So you weren't... Um, so there was a reasonable number of, of women um, on the ship because, of course, in days gone by, women whilst they could be in the Navy, were not permitted to be on active duty on on vessels, were they? Yeah, that's right. And when I joined, there were still ships out there, the destroyer escorts, um, that were still male only. So it's interesting, the last ship that I joined, HMAS Canimbla, a lot of the destroyer sailors um, joined those ships because the DDGs were decommissioned. So um, in that ship, I was working with fellas who had never worked with women before. Um, that particular ship I was on for five and a half years, standard crew was 180 and there was about 30 women. Wow. Okay. And I was the only female in the engineering crew of about 60 people for about 18 months. So I've got more questions about that in a moment. So you have your career in the Navy. You, you've progressed through. What happened then? Well, I, I did change trades halfway through. So um, I did six years as a weapons maintainer, serving on three different classes of ship, lots of Australian Southeast Asian deployments. Um, when I picked up Canimbla, she was in refit in Newcastle. So she was still in dry dock. She looked like a metal patchwork quilt. But 18 months later, we put her back together, put her to sea, and I decided I wasn't working hard enough. So I changed trades. I went back to Cerberus. I requalified as an engineer, a diesel mechanic, and went back to Canimbla um, and rejoined her just before the September 11 attacks in 2001. So so there's two things here. Well, there's three things. Number one, you joined um, an employer, being the, the Royal Australian Navy, uh, on active duty, so uh, a, as a woman. So uh, I'm not... A, not, not something that we would call in days gone by as a traditional role for, for a woman, so a non-traditional um, employer. You also then uh, have two trades, which we wouldn't call, which we would also say non-traditional trades for women. Why? I, I blame my parents. Um, I have... And, and it's taken me a long time to understand this about myself. So this is part of my self-reflection journey. I have a drive to be useful and to feel useful. And there are certain things that I believe are useful things to do. So the harder, the better, generally. The dirtier, the better, historically. I'm not so interested in that now. Um, and it, it, it's just how I'm built, I've decided. So when I started off as a weapons maintainer, um, you know, I was having a great time, learning lots. But when I joined Knimbler, I was the only weapons maintainer on a ship that didn't have any weapons. 
So my responsibility was looking after. So we we took on um, a battalion of army personnel, their equipment, their ammunition, their weapons, etc. My job was to make sure the um, armories were maintained, the sprinkler systems were set up, all that sort of stuff. So it was an important role, but I didn't feel like it was the most important role and there were certainly sailors on the ship that were working harder than me. So um, I decided that... I wanted to be as useful as I could, which is why I changed trades and became a diesel mechanic. You know, they worked out in the engine rooms, really challenging environments, um, a really tight-knit crew. Um, that's where I wanted to be. So that that's pretty much been the driver all the way through. I just want to be useful, but I have a very particular idea about what that looks like okay it is interesting that um you know you said you blame your parents you probably thank them now because i certainly um uh, you know i absolutely in fact i had a lovely conversation with my parents over in western australia last week and thanked them for the way they brought me up um but also you know it privately cursed them a little bit because I just did not ever understand that women couldn't do anything. I grew up with two sisters, a mum and a dad, who just, we just had conversations about what we were going to be in the world and, and you know, it was almost limitless. And then, of course, you hit the workforce and the world gives you a bit of a reality check uh, when you're a woman. And so I like you, I had a fairly fierce determination to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, and if someone told me I couldn't do it, that was usually a red flag to say, well, just watch me. But from your perspective, when you when you were in those environments and you wanted to be useful, um, how much did gender play a role in shaping um, the attitudes towards you? And also, I guess, your attitudes towards working in those, well, those those male-dominated environments. It probably shaped me more than I recognised at the time. Um, so I've always been in the minority either for my youth, obviously joining the Navy when I was quite young, or for my gender or both. Um, but, yeah, at the same time, I think what my parents gave me was a very strong work ethic a very strong belief in service to others um, and a very, you know, strong sense of, well, there weren't any limits. And, you know, it's it's been their gift that, you know, everything I've wanted to do, they've supported regardless of how they felt about it personally. It turns out, and I didn't know this at the time, that both my parents were peace activists. My brother and I both joined the military, but you know, they, didn't their, they didn't put their views on me. You know, it was very much my path and you know absolute credit to them to for them to just let me go and work it out myself so I think in the military environment um the military at the time so this is 1995 to 2000 military time was very conscious of gender um so as an organization they were very supportive of of gender in those non-traditional spaces on the ground a little bit different but I think certainly my experience has been different to a lot of other girls. I absolutely recognise that. Most of the issues I've had with people in the military environment has been personal, like personality-driven, not necessarily because of gender. I just thought they were assholes. They might have thought I was an asshole. You know, it was a personal thing as opposed to the fact that I was a girl. Um, that's my experience. I absolutely recognise that there are other girls out there that had different ones. I know, you know, the, the main 
or the biggest thing I saw on my ship was a girl who, you know, was trying to get qualified. Um, there were processes that we had to go through to get ticked off to be endorsed in a particular piece of equipment. Um, she was ready. She, she could pass all the tests, but her chief wouldn't sign her off um, for no other reason that we could think of than because she was a girl. I'm, I'm reminded of, of Julia Gillard's quote as she left uh, or after she left uh, Parliament. My gender didn't have everything to do with it my gender didn't have nothing to do with it my gender had something to do with it um and i think that's you know that, that it's it's a hard one and and you know and particularly when we look at intersectionality so you're saying you had youth and gender and then if you i mean perhaps overlay that with you know, lgbti or if i'm a person of color or whatever so we know there's something there um but i'm, I'm interested in particularly from a leadership perspective you said that the navy was very focused on gender um and 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 like in so many workplaces probably didn't translate as neatly to the workplace as as possible but what did focused on gender what did it look like, sound like and feel like for you at the time? It was more subtle than obvious, I suppose. I knew that they were recruiting very heavily towards gender because that was one of the things that, you know, was spoken about when I was recruited. Um, I knew they were very heavily trying to encourage women to take on those non-traditional roles because it was something that was talked about across the organisation. Um, what I found, though, when I was actually out there was that most people didn't care whether you were male, female or otherwise, as long as you were willing to do the work. And if you were willing to do the work, then you were accepted for who you were for the most part. Um, so, you know, like, like any other small microcosm community, there are, you know, outliers. I was definitely one of those. I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. That was going to isolate me straight away. Um, you know, I was a female. I learned a lot about cars and a lot about motorcycles that I probably never really was interested in, but that's how I connected with people. Um, but, you know, a lot of these these big, rough, you know, ready sailors, as soon as you start getting them talking about their kids, they go all soft and squishy. So I think for the most part, especially in the military, there's a persona that people wear um, because they're military, but really underneath they're, they're just people in a unique environment doing the best they can with how they've been developed. So when I mentioned that there's some fellas out there that had never served with women before, I understood that they'd never served with women before. So, they're, you know, obviously there's rules about how they're supposed to act, but I need to understand where they're coming from, what their upbringing was, what their experience was before I could then judge their action or behaviour. So I think it was really important to know the people that were around me, know where they came from, um, and then help them understand what was expected of someone who was now serving on a multi-gender crew. And for the most part, the guys transitioned really well. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I felt like I was surrounded by brothers and uncles. Um, as I said, there was definitely some assholes out there, but... 
they were assholes to everyone. It wasn't just me. You know, the, it, it's, again, I'm coming back to our leadership definition, you know, engaging the greatness in others also means you've got to seek out that greatness. And and what I'm hearing from you is that you really took the time to seek out the greatness in these other people, find, um, find the connection point, find the point of, you know, whether it was commonality or something that you could relate to. And I think, you know, I, I totally resonate with that. You know, I, I like you, have, haven't grown up in such hyper-masculine environments, but certainly worked with more men than I've worked with women over the course of my career. But things that I find, for me, it's footy and sport. That's my common denominator. Luckily, I am really interested in both. So, you know, I, I think when you're able to seek out the greatness, find that point of, of connection and talk about stuff that's interesting, then they can get beyond the, oh, you know, here's a woman or here's, you know, whatever that initial impression is. And I guess the flip side of it is when we seek out the greatness in others, we can get past those personas that you talked about, those hyper-masculine environments. And, and I'm so I'm not giving I'm not giving toxic workplaces and toxic people a free pass here, but I am saying that there are a lot of people and men in particular, and Australia is really has some significant challenges here who feel they have to conform to this really tight definition of what it means to be a man. And if we can get beyond that, seek out their greatness and find the gold within you know that's that's a great leadership act even at a very you were clearly very young um so it's a great leadership act emma did you recognize it at the time not as much i i knew that i was deliberately trying to um be able to integrate myself um i spent a lot of time initially trying to be one of the boys however i still had very strong values and limits to what i would put up with i suppose as i said 12 years in the Navy and they never convinced me to drink. Um, it just wasn't something that I would do. So I accepted that there were some things that I wasn't going to be able to be part of the team with, and that was okay. And, you know, for the most part I was accepted and, and that was fine and, you know, they didn't mind someone to drive them home every night and all that sort of stuff. So there's definitely advantages to that. But I think it's really important that while it's it's – especially in that environment, critical to fit in. You know, you have to be part of a team. Um, there is no other way to do it in that environment when it's life or death, left or right. Um, but at the same time, you've still got to be true to yourself and you've still got to have that belief in yourself that your values are okay and it's a requirement that everyone else around you accept them or at least don't try and... Um, turn you into something else. And there was an instance I'd actually been posted off the ship in 2004 and came back to help them work up for their next deployment and was put in charge of an engine room and we were given a directive. We had to do this particular piece of work in this engine room. So I'm like, great, no worries, let's go and get done. And, you know, we'd spend our shifts pottering around just continually doing the work. And um, the engineer thought I was the best thing since sliced bread and, you know, wrote me up in reports and, you know, told everyone how great I was and the other engine room drivers tapped me on the shoulder and said, uh, oi, just slow down a bit. You're making the rest of us look bad. So I actually had to choose whether I would pull my workload back or, or my, my yeah, pull my workload back to fit in with their pace and their standards or accept that by maintaining my own, I was going to ostracise them 
but be true to myself. And I decided at that point that one of my personal credos was going to be I'm not going to do less to make other people look better. This is my standard. This is what I feel good doing. If that's not okay with the people around me, unless I'm not coming up to the mark, then too bad. This is just how it's going to be. So that was probably a really obvious epiphany for me. And, um, you know, that's pretty much set me up for the rest of my career, really. I uh, I actually really appreciate that because it's a great example of using your personal greatness, which, you know, your personal greatness is made up of your strengths, your skills, your attributes and your values um, and leading from the values that you espouse. Uh, not just saying, you know, I'm going to write down here are my values and then you lead differently. And when I say lead, I mean at every level because, of course, leadership manifests itself at every single level, even as, you know, a, 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 a you know person in an engine room or whether you're in the around the board table. And being true to yourself is actually saying, you know, am I prepared to continue to lead courageously from a point of you know from my from my values even when it's a bit tricky you know courage is not the absence of fear right so I think that's a again listeners a really great example of using the greatness in you and sometimes using the greatness in you takes guts because you are going to come up against or cop a bit of flack um but but I do like that not not limiting yourself to make others look better, even if it comes at, at personal cost. So yeah, you, you're giving me lots of lots of fuel here. <laughs> and look, you know, it's it's not easy. You know, there were definitely days where it's really hard. And you know, my my ship was 160 meters long and 20 meters wide, and you know, five decks down and four decks up, and 180 people on board. And some days there was no one to talk to. You know, it can be really isolating, but at the same time you know, it's still important. And to be able to walk around with your head held high going, you know, I'm staying true to my values. And it's recognised, you know, I I was very fortunate. I was awarded um, the Centenary Federation Medal um, for the work that I did on HMAS Canimbla. You know, it does get recognised. And I think that's the thing that is really important, staying true to yourself and being able to walk with your head held high means that even if if the people at your level, you know, up or down, don't value you, the organisation will. And whether it's obvious recognition in a medal or promotion or other opportunities or even nothing at all, that ability to be comfortable in yourself and your decisions is, you know, gold. Well, I reckon one of my litmus tests is if I can stand in front of the mirror at the end of the day and look myself in the eye for 30 seconds and say, I've led from my values and I've done a good job. You know, let's face it, holding the leadership mirror up, is that's it, right? Because you can you can gild the lily and, and talk about a whole lot of stuff to a whole lot of people, but if you can't live with yourself, um, well, I think, that, you know, there's a little bit of work to be to be doing there. So, And I agree that the organisation will recognise you in some way, shape or form. But, again, around if you're leading for those outcomes, you know what the why is. We, we're, we're here for this job. This is the job that I'm doing and I'm contributing to where the organisation needs to go. That's, you know, that's... I think there's a great sense of fulfilment and I listeners, I'd like you to be a lot more connected to what's what the why is for your organization and how you are contributing to getting that the organization to its why. Emma, I want to come back to um, you know, that that sense of isolation. You're in a 
in a very small environment, um, you know, that's kind of a football field, not even, um, with a whole lot of other people. So how do you how do you navigate or and, and I guess this is the advice piece for women who find themselves in a position where they feel other, like other permanently, because they are in the minority or they, they feel isolated. How did you navigate that and what how did you what support did you tap into, whether it's internal or external? Yeah, so I think, again, my understanding about this period has come through self-reflection, although I did I did do a bit of reflection at the time. You know, we went to the Gulf the first time in 2001 and I remember sitting in the engine room writing in my journal, having a discussion with myself about whether it was okay to die for this particular cause and whether I was happy with that. And I think I was I was 23 at the time. Um, and decided that I was and, and it would be okay because I believed in the purpose of, you know, not necessarily did we need to go and, and support America, do whatever they needed to do, but accepted that I was a tool of the Australian government and, you know, all this other sort of gung-ho stuff that you do when you're that age. But um, so self-reflection is absolutely critical, I think, in anyone's growth. Listeners, you've heard me say it again, again and again, stop breathe, reflect. What's got me to where I am and still serves me? What's got me to where I am and no longer serves me? The best leaders make time for self-reflection because if you keep hurtling through life and leadership without doing that, you're going to wake up one day and go, who the hell am I? What am I doing and what's next? Sorry, Emma, I just needed to get on my soapbox there. So make time for self-reflection. I'm right on that soapbox with you. Um, So I suppose for me... My motivation was very different to a lot of other people's motivation. I was very service-driven. A lot of other people were there for a lot of different reasons. So I was young, I was female, I was, you know, all about the flag, that sort of stuff. I was isolated anyway. And I think I was okay with that from the start. I didn't have a drive to conform Um I did love being part of the team. So one of the things you do when you join a ship is you get the ship's ball cap and it's got the ship's name on the front and and it's a very important part of our connection with our ship. Um, And I've served on four different classes of ship and it's an interesting experience to leave a crew because when you're in there and you're part of it, you are totally and utterly connected, surrounded and immersed in that particular crew and your experiences are totally unique and you can't share them with anybody else outside that environment because there's just nothing else, there's nothing people can compare it to that makes sense if you're outside that space. But as soon as you leave, they close ranks behind you because they have to to be able to keep doing what they've got to do. And it's a very hard thing to be sitting on the outside of a crew. So I've done it a couple of times and it's a very difficult transition. But one of the things that helped me recognize is that even on the outside, you're still part of the mission and the purpose. And it's just a matter of you going and finding your next goal or your next project. Or so I left a ship that I loved. I'd served five and a half years. I'd deferred shore time. I'd retrained so I felt I could serve her better, Um, I left her to go and be a recruit instructor in the RAN recruit school. 
And as much as it was hard to be away from the ship and she went and deployed to a whole lot of other places that didn't include me anymore, um, I threw myself into my next job, which was developing the next generation of sailors. And I was able to live my values and, you know, people looked at me in awe and it was it's a bit of a thrill really. But, you know, you were able to influence the next generation of sailors to, to go out there and do what they do but better. So I think it's it's absolutely critical to acknowledge your outsideness. It's absolutely appropriate to be miserable sometimes, you know, the the it's absolutely appropriate to curl up in a corner and cry. We did a lot of that. But this idea that that we're not supposed to feel, this idea that it's never going to be hard is just rubbish. Anything you do will have hard bits. And it's absolutely appropriate to feel like, well, today is just crap. But then you you come back tomorrow and you have another crack. So I think it's it's really important to um, you know accept that you know your gender makes you unique in some of these environments, but be there anyway. If that's important to you, if you're doing something that you believe has value, be there anyway, and you know be at the table even if. You sit there and go, oh, I don't know why I'm here and I don't know what I've got to offer. Be there because just being there adds value. Um, and, and the other thing, you never know who is going to be watching you be there. So I had an interesting experience. I was doing a morning briefing um, to a crew out on the fire line at Swifts Creek in 2020 when we had those big fires. And I had a fella come up to me and he said, oh, you probably don't remember me, but I was at this talk you did and I didn't remember the talk. And he said, and you were saying this stuff and I didn't remember what I was saying. And and he said, and my 11-year-old daughter was with me and she just really resonated with what you were saying and she was so pumped about it and I'm just so grateful. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I think it's it's one of those things you never know who's watching. So when you're standing there or sitting at the table feeling you know, like you've got a big bobblehead going, everyone's looking at me, mostly they're not. But you never know who's seeing you there and going, wow, you know, if they're there, maybe I can do that. Or I'm really glad they said that, that really resonated with me today. Um, or whatever it is, you've just got to be there and you've just got to do it anyway. And I think that's that's our internal courage coming out and it's, it's about living your values and having your passion and all that sort of stuff. But it's also about accepting that not every day is going to be great. You're not going to feel all good all the time. You're going to stuff it up. That's the rules. Because if you don't stuff it up, you'll never have an opportunity to learn. So I, I think, you know, we've got to get away from this idea that it's always going to be great. It's not. Sometimes it's going to be shit, you know. <laughs> Sometimes helicopters are going to fall off the back of ships. Sometimes your friends are going to die. Um, you know, sometimes you're going to be out there alone and it's going to be really hard. But do it anyway because it's worth it. That, that is outstanding advice. And, you know, my dad says, well, Mitch, life's not all beer and Skittles. Um, and it isn't. And, uh, and, and I think resilience gets talked about perhaps not quite in the right context because I think resilience is not just turning up regardless it is actually saying what am I going to call upon from within myself to help me show up not just turn up but show up at these tables and I agree with you 
there will be people, leadership casts a long shadow. And when, as a woman, we show up in places that perhaps people aren't expecting us to, we're making it easy for the next woman to show up in that place. We're making it easier for, for the people who aren't expecting a woman to be less shocked about the next woman showing up in, in that place. And, yeah, and you know, there's this great saying that we're planting seeds for trees that we will never sit under the shade of. I'm so glad that that father came back to you and gave you that feedback because that's a, that's a bit of shade that you can sit under say, you know, I did something there. But, you know, it, it, it's such an important thing. And you're right, we do have to call upon that, that internal courage. But I want to, before I, I get some last sort of lessons, leadership lessons from you, in those times when you're when you felt miserable and you've curled up in the corner and had a bit of a cry and thought, "Wow, this is tough." Who's who's your support crew? Who do you go to? And and how did you find that support crew, cheer squad, whomever they may be? Uh, so always my family. You know, mum and dad have been incredibly supportive of whatever crazy idea I've come up with. Um, so they've pretty much been the staple foundation for everything uh later down the track it's been my mentors so I've had a couple of great mentors who've sort of you know yeah yeah this is great throw me out there and and you know watch me fall and let me hit the ground and go okay what have we learned from that um but they've also been great people to um you know just allow me to test myself um in a safe space and then provide frank and fearless feedback so when I get um, into a point now, there's I've got a couple of great mentors who have given me fabulous opportunities to work it out for myself. And this is the thing, I suppose, that's really important with a mentor. You're not looking for someone to show you how to do it. You're looking for someone to get you on the path and then point out all the things you stuffed up along the way so you can do it better next time. Uh, so they've been really, really valuable to me. And I think... They're probably the ones that I model myself off now as the kind of leader mentor that I want to be so that I can do that for other people. Good advice again. Um, and, you know, strategic mentors are those ones who really, they get you, they get where you want to go um, and, again, what their role is in helping you get there. And, um, and yeah, that, that frank and fearless feedback um, is often very, very useful. So, um, Emma, I want to close out with, I suppose, thinking about your career in in the Navy, in the, the uh, emergency services, um, literally in life and death situations, which there will be many of our listeners who will never find themselves leading in a life or death situation. Even though in some corporations it feels like life or death, but I used to say to people, listen, we're not, we're not finding a cure for cancer here. We're really just trying to work out how to make an ATM work better. So let's put things into context, right? So uh, not to make light of, you know, very important projects and things like that, but what what has emergency or what has first responder military leadership taught you that you can share with our listeners who are not in those kind of environments but are really committed to leadership? What, what, what can you share with us around that? So I, I have a list. It's not in any particular order. Um, the first one is that as a leader, it's really important that you don't have all the answers, not that you don't think you have all the answers, that you just don't because when you don't have the answer, it's an opportunity for someone else to step up 
and and take that that piece on their own. So surround yourself with people who are smarter than you um, and give them an opportunity to shine. You know, one of my favourite sayings is that, um, you know, when the work is done and the leader walks away, the people say we did it ourselves. And I think it's, um, you know, the art of war. But, you know, that really resonated for me because in my environment especially, if, if your leader is not there for whatever reason, you know, whether it's it's the, the bullet's taken them or they've, the fire's taken them or, or something else has happened, who's left? You are. And you have to step up. So I think, you know, the role of the leader is to build leaders all around them and then let them get on with it. One of my personal sayings is that, you know, a leader's job is to make sure their people have what they need to do their job. That's the only reason we're here is to make sure other people have what they need, whether it's training or support or discipline or, you know, guidance or mentoring or whatever. That's why we're here. We need to make sure that it's we don't make it about us because as soon as you make leadership or the mission or whatever about yourself, you've lost. You know, it needs to be about something bigger than you and you need to be able to create that picture for the people around you and get them to commit to that bigger picture that doesn't have your face on it. It has their face on it. Um, and then you know, you're leading. And and it's not about leading from behind. You know, there's a lot of talk about you lead from behind or you lead from behind in front or whatever. You lead from wherever your people need you to be and that will change all the time. And I think that's the other thing, you know, our leadership needs to adjust to what our people need on any particular day and it's always going to be different. Um, you know, our, our people are, are needing things on different days and I think the COVID experience certainly for me has really resonated with that you know, the expectation we can have of our people on any particular day is not consistent. You know, some days they're going to be more capable than others. Some days they're going to have a whole lot of shit going on in their world that has nothing to do with the work that is going to impact their capacity to function in that space. And as leaders, we need to understand that and we need to take our people on face value with what they have on that particular day and make that okay. Because the other thing that I absolutely truly recognise is you need to care about your people, you know, and not just care in a an abstract sense. You need to really feel it. These are my people. Their successes are, are you know, and their triumphs, that's my goal. You know, their, their hurt, that hurts me. You know, you've got to make it personal because people are personal. And if you can make it personal, you are going to get hurt. Absolutely. And that's okay too because you're also going to have huge successes and amazing joys. And, you know, there's been experiences where, you know, some of my teams have, have you know, achieved something they never thought they could achieve or they've achieved a personal goal that they've been striving for for so long and just, you know, the the, the joy and the, the, you know, it's just it's infectious and it's contagious and it just brings the whole team up and, you, you made that space to make that happen and that's your role as a leader is to make that space. So there is a huge amount of benefit from accepting that personal connection with your people. It does cost you and that's okay because if you're going to commit to your people, it should. If you're not going to commit to your people, then you're never going to get the highs 
and they're never going to have the successes that they would otherwise have if you were willing to feel it. I wish I'd had you as a leader, um, you know, as I was coming through my career, um, A, because you're a woman, uh, and B, because you are an extraordinary leader, Emma, and I knew that from the first moment I heard you speaking um, all those months ago. You know, you, you've talked us through today, start with why, you know, think about when we think about our leadership definition, using the greatness in you to achieve and sustain extraordinary outcomes by engaging the greatness in others. You've given us a lot of real gold here about seeking out and engaging the greatness in others and aligning them towards what's important. You know, whether your mission is to to be on a a Royal Australian Navy warship uh, going into into battle, whether it's fighting bushfires or whether it's doing the, the, the project that's really important to your to your organisation, being able to seek out the greatness in other people um, and as a leader, putting yourself into in a position, what I call it is, is being a barrier and a bulldozer. You be a barrier to the bullshit so that they don't have to encounter it and you bulldoze through the bullshit that you, your people need you to do. Um, so you, you, you've captured that perfectly, but ultimately so that we all know what our why is and how to achieve it. You know, I, I, I really appreciate the fact that you've also shared with us what it's like to be a woman in a, a, a hyper-masculine, male-dominated environment and that it's okay to feel not okay. You know, it's not, as Dad says, not all beer and skittle. It's okay not to feel okay, but dig deep and stop, breathe, reflect, think, who am I? What do I stand for? How do I keep drawing upon that? And also, who's my support crew? Who do I go to to make sure that they're keeping me in touch with my why and my values and things like that? Emma, I think we're, we're uh, here in Australia and in, in the CFA here in Victoria, we're very, very fortunate to have a terrific leader, an extraordinary leader like you. And, you know, thank you so much for the wisdom that you've shared with our listeners and folks uh you'll see in the show notes all of the different places that you can find out more about emma uh, and her story and and what she does but from me to you emma i think you are extraordinary thank you so much for your time i absolutely appreciate the feedback michelle thank you so much for the opportunity this has been another episode of lead to soar a production of a career that soars you can reach michelle redfern at michelleredfern.com and mel butcher at melbutcher.com Join us inside A Career That Soars at acareerthatsoars.com.